Welcome to Short Ends Podcast, where we discuss experimental film, underground movie making, and independent cinema. We're here with Patrick Meany, an independent filmmaker. Patrick, I'm very happy to have you on. Yeah, awesome. Thanks for uh, bringing me on. So where are you right now? I'm in uh, LA and Santa Monica, uh, but I'm originally from Marinac, where you are from as well. So uh, we go way back. That's right. So I met you in... Westchester, uh, working yep. at LMC TV. Yep, yep. How did you get involved in LMC? Uh, well, when I was in high school, um, I had kind of started making movies like with my friends and stuff. And then I was always was always thing I was interested in. It was always thing I wanted to do. And it was kind of always like the career I wanted to have. Um, so once I was in high school, I heard you could volunteer with them. Um, and I started volunteering, like filming events and filming the plays they would do like at, uh, the Maronic high school, the Shakespeare and what have you. Um, and just kind of got to know the people more, uh, to the point where I would be able to, you know, borrow the equipment and use their computers to edit. And it was really great. Um, so LMC was like the, the public access cable station of, you know, like if, if you're not familiar with that, like Wayne's world esque programming, I would say. Yeah, uh, exactly. Usually, usually a lot older people. I feel like on LMC than Wayne, but uh, it was that kind of vibe. Um, but it was pretty cool because it was a lot of you know the ability to just get a lot of stuff and make a lot of stuff um, if you had the the desire to do so. Absolutely, I had the same experience with LMC. I mean, borrowing their equipment and everything was a great asset, and then volunteering there and getting all of that experience and everything. Um, and then I met you during specifically during one of the LMC TV summer camps, um, you were an instructor there and I was your student. So it was pretty cool. And, um, when I was in college, I got, uh, me and, uh, Jordan, who was also from Amerinac, who is, uh, a DP now. And I've worked with him for many years. Um, like literally probably like 25 years. Um, so we would go way back and we got offered to do this, run this workshop, which in retrospect, I think was pretty crazy. Uh, because I was like 19 at the time and didn't necessarily know that much. I wasn't even that much older than you guys, but um, it was a lot of fun. I mean, it was basically just making this like crazy movie um, that today I think people would have a lot more issues with. I mean, we were like running around with guns and stuff in the school, but you know, um, it was, it was a lot of fun, I think to, to do it. And I know, um, I would always show you guys like all these artsy movies that I was into. Um, and then we kind of like copy them. Um, I think I played your dad in the movie. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, it was pretty fun. Uh, it was a fun summer job and, um, you know, it, it was a cool opportunity to, to, I guess uh, like running a set really is not that different from like running a bunch of kids at a summer camp. Cause you got all these people you're trying to make them do, the stuff to get the project done and it can be a, a tricky thing to do at times. So it was a good uh, learning experience for everybody, I think. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. And as a student there, you were very influential to me. I remember you showed us a clip from uh, Clockwork Orange, which uh, at the time I hadn't seen and then like begged my parents to watch for the <laughs> next uh, five years after that. Um, a lot of great like sci-fi films, uh, you know, more Kubrick and everything. Um, so just uh, some great influences there and worked with uh, some great people. I met you, I met Jordan, um, David Haug was in that class. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Haug, I know was like very influenced by, um, Wong Kar Wai. I had just, uh, like was introduced to his work at, uh, school at college the year before. And then I showed it to you guys and that was somebody 
where yeah, I think it was a, it was pretty cool, and I'm glad that like you got you know something out of it and got into the the films as a result. Definitely. Uh, where did you go to college? Uh, Wesleyan in Connecticut, um, which is like a very it's a pretty small liberal arts school, but they have a very strong film program. Um, so like Joss Whedon went there, Michael Bay, uh, Ben Zeitlin, who's also from Westchester, did Beast of the Southern Wild. Uh, was a, there at roughly the same time as me, um, and it's good. It was very has a very strong like network, um, both in New York and out here in LA. So it was a good place to go. I think. Was your major film? Yeah, it was film studies. So um, it was pretty small program at the time. There was like twenty five people in the major, but now it's gotten bigger. I think they got a lot of press for um, a lot of you know successful people and more people are going there to try to get into that network, I think. So film studies, were you actually making films there or working on production as well? Um, not that much. So that's why I think LMC was really good for me because most of the people I was going to school with there had like, did not, had, did not know like Final Cut, did not know how to use a camera. And I had, you know, been doing this for a long time and was even teaching it in the summers and was making a lot of stuff on my own. So there it wasn't until... Uh, junior year that would you would actually make stuff um, and it was cool because we got to shoot on film which I never did before I never did again and have no real desire to do again but it was it was cool to work with and have the opportunity to do that um, and then so basically you made like a couple films in junior year and then you made like a thesis film which was like a 12 minute film in the senior year but it, it was more theory driven than uh, production driven you gotcha gotcha so at this point that you had already been working on your own productions for a while, right? Yeah. So I had been doing stuff ever since, you know, middle school, high school, um, and in college, usually on each break, like in the summer and in the, um, the Christmas or whatever holiday winter break, um, usually like Jordan and I and some other people we, we knew would make like one thing, um, you know, if we could get everybody wrangled together to do it. Um, but yeah, I was always, I always loved, you know, making a lot of stuff um, and just getting out there and doing it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. When did you make The Third Age? Is that, that's the first one that's on your website? Yeah, well, that was a, a kind of crazy project. So it was a web series, which um, after I graduated from school, I was just uh, like, you know, I want to make more stuff and have a format where it can, you know, come out. And at the time there was a lot of buzz about like web series kind of taking over and you know, the, the, whatever the hour long episode being like on the way out and it's all going to be five minute content produced independently. Um, so it was a cool time. Um, and we made Jordan and I and uh, a bunch of other people made this. It was a kind of crazy undertaking cause it was like 45 shooting days over about maybe three or four years. And it, it wound up as like, it's, it's like four hours of content. Um, and we, it, it's on Amazon Prime now, which is cool. So it, it's always interesting to me that people are watching it and might not even know, like, this was made for like literally no money. It might be like, why is this show so cheap when Mrs. Maisel gets so much money, you know? Um, but it, it was kind of like a grad school where it was just learning to just going out there and shooting a lot of stuff and learning to work with actors and just learning, you know, what shots to do and how to run a set and kind of, it was a very small set, but still kind of getting to know all these basics. And then I think by the end of doing that, I had shot so many days. I was like, okay, here's 
what works. Here are shots that work. Here's how, you know, how much we can do in a day. Here's what will look good and stuff. So it, it was a great opportunity, even though not a lot of people saw it, I would say. Was some of that also shot at LMC TV? I thought I remembered you doing part of it there. Oh, yes. We used, um, we shot wherever we could find spots. So we shot a bunch at LMC and the studios. We would shoot at, um, you know, it's kind of a chronicle of like, a, it was like the apartment I lived in in Brooklyn. We shot there. It was at my house in the Maranac. It was all over the place. Offices, the office where I worked. It was, so it was like wherever we could find a spot, we would try to, you know, figure out how to make use of it. Um, so yeah, it was, it was all over and it was a lot of fun. I would definitely, it, it's one of those things where like, on the one hand, it was kind of a way to like ambitious and crazy project, but I also would kind of recommend that people do that because you just, by shooting so much, you learn like what works and what doesn't. Definitely. Yeah. I'm also a big proponent of overshooting and then figuring out the, the mistakes along the way and everything and, you know, cutting back uh, where necessary, but yeah, I yeah. Think it's definitely a learning experience. Um, and then the other person involved in that project, Joel Seligman, right? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. So he was my, um, teacher at Rhineck in high school in Maranac. Um, and, uh, Jordan and I, and some of our other friends were in the jazz club, which was where we would, um, play. Like I played trumpet, he played saxophone and we would play, um, you know, like jazz songs, but it was also kind of sell. I always loved to just ruminate. He was kind of the teacher who would like ruminate on life and like philosophies of existence and stuff. So people always liked him because he would he would like famously open every class by being like, "Does anyone have anything to say?" And then uh, some people would be like, "Well, if you don't want to read the book, just say like, I don't know about this Iraq War or whatever." And then you could get him going. Um, but he was he was a great teacher, and I think the kind of teacher that um, the impression I get is like this sort of like learning style is being phased out in the world of standardized tests and what have you. So he he was very much the opposite of like any accountability or you know tangible results but i think people learned a lot more as a result um so i know i sent him your wife to do a saxophone on a project once uh, so yeah what happened with that it was great it was uh, great to just work with him same experience uh the first time i talked to him i think we talked for like 30 40 minutes and uh he was kind of all over the place and it was a very uh connected conversation and uh he was very focused and everything but like topic wise all over and uh I left uh, you know, thinking he was a great person. He laid down a great uh, track for the saxophone, and uh, you know, I used it in the final cut and everything. So, thanks for recommending him. <laughs> oh yeah, um, it was always fun. It was weird because we he was playing basically like God essentially because he looks kind of like Jerry Garcia or like Santa, a hippie Santa or you know whatever. So we had him in this like long white robe outfit, and he was very much the like classic image of God. So it was a pretty fun. Um, just to be like, you're doing this now. And he'd be like, all right, whatever, you know. And then he would like sit on the side and talk to like the other actors for like hours while we were shooting the other stuff. So um, yeah, it was always fun. Always fun to work with him. Yeah, yeah. And you were saying like in his class, he kind of opened up with this uh, open-ended approach and everything and, you know, kind of brought this uh, like almost philosophical element to his teaching and everything, which is something even in your early works in the Third Age and all, that your work always has this element of, either questioning reality or characters kind of in another um, uh, another universe or something. Uh, at this time in your early work, what were your influences in terms of that, in terms of your thinking, philosophy, that kind of stuff? Um, I think what, one of the biggest influences for me was Grant Morrison, who I uh, 
you know, spoiler, went on to make the documentary about, but in high school and in college, and I loved, loved his work because I think he had a real blend of characters, like very, you know, relatable character stuff. And then there's like these insane high concepts about the universe and time and existence and what have you. And the fusion of that was so cool and something I had never seen before. And I think for me, that was sort of like, this is a template for what I wanted to do. And it was just hugely influential. And he, even his views about kind of the nature of fiction itself, like he, he was talking about how, you know, Superman exists. He's been around for 80 years. He's a, exists now. He'll exist after we're dead. So who's more real, like Superman or the person who created him? Mm -hmm. um, so it kind of gives you a different perspective as opposed to being like, oh, making a movie or telling a story is just like, it's kind of point, you know, what's the point when there's so much crazy stuff in the world, but you can, I think you can create things that have an impact, you know, far beyond, um, what you personally can do. Um, and obviously like Shakespeare or somebody is a good example where like these works endure, we, we don't know what he was like, but the works endure. And, um, most of us aren't going to endure like that, but it's still a way to, to think about the importance of this stuff. Yeah, definitely. That's very interesting. When when did you start reading his stuff? Uh, in high school, I um, got into comics probably around like 14 or 15, and I read uh, Watchmen was like a hugely influential book, um, and it's been cool to watch the show, uh, like cool and a little weird slash frustrating at times, but it's been cool. Um, but that was, a, I was just like, oh my God, this is like, the, the story that I always wanted to see from like a superhero story. I, I was always into like darker and kind of like more out there and weird stuff. So I always wanted to, was interested in things like, Oh, what if, you know, superheroes were real? Why don't, why don't the people do this? Why do they always just, you know, let the heroes go? Why do the heroes always win? So it was really cool to read that and see a more kind of realistic take that explored that. And that led me to other people like Neil Gaiman and Sandman and Grant's work. Um, and the Invisibles in particular was a book that the first book of his that I read and I had heard it was kind of like, uh, people were saying like the matrix was a ripoff of the Invisibles, which, you know, it, you can say that if you want. Um, but that's what led me to it. And then I read more and more of his stuff as time went on. Gotcha. Gotcha. You said also like you were drawn to kind of some of the darker things and, you know, villains maybe as uh, people of interest and everything. Even in your work, I see this uh, very dark kind of gruesome side even in uh, the early stuff. It's just uh, very, some of it is very gory and like uh, surreally um, violent or something. Um, is David Lynch an influence as well? Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, I think he's, you know the things that in, in like Firewalk with me that the twin peaks movie or a lot of his work, I think is another good example of like what I was saying with grant where he's fusing these like character based relatable things with these super weird ways to express them. And it becomes more potent. So I think like in Mulholland drive, it's a, you know, a kind of relatable story of like somebody who goes to LA and isn't making it and is struggling and, you know, ultimately winds up, in a not not ending up well um but it's told in this way where it's so the structure is so weird and there's so much you know surreal elements within it it gives it like a grandeur that just seeing you know if you were to see the story told straight forward and it was just like the girl moves from to canada or toronto wherever and 
winds up, you know, killing herself essentially after not making it, that would not have the power that the movie does. Right. Yeah. And in your work, again, I see, um, I guess, what is the next one you made? The Viral Man? Yeah. So I did that as a short, um, which was a, a fun experiment. Um, so with that, it was basically, I was told at the time, uh, at that era, a lot of people were breaking out with short films that were kind of, um, it would be like, oh, somebody directed this short film, now they're going to hire to direct whatever, The Evil Dead or, or what have you. So I, I was told, like, oh, it would be good to make a big short film like that to show off your skills. So it was kind of a crazy project. We built this huge set that was kind of like a, a heart um, and had a lot of effects and things which were um, fun to do but also a challenge. Um, so I think it turned out well, but I think I also realized that, like, my strength wasn't necessarily in doing this uh, more straight like action. It was like, I like to focus on kind of characters and let the people act a little more rather than have the production design and things really be the star. Gotcha. Yeah. It makes sense. Even in that movie though, you're saying that, you know, it was kind of action driven, but it wasn't so narrative. Um, it was kind of the whole question of what was happening in the viral man was never exactly defined. And again, kind of reminds me of Mulholland Drive in that, that you, it's not a straight story. It's kind of told it's a straight story, another David Lynch, but, <laughs> no. uh, but it's, it's not a sequential like that. Um, so again, I saw some influence there, uh, just kind of related to a David Lynch mentality or something. Oh, definitely. And I think a lot of the, in that, I tried to do some of these kind of more weird, like neon-y looking effects things, um, which were definitely influenced by kind of that, the palette and the, the like really popping colors that you mm -hmm. see a lot. And then on that film, were you still working with Jordan at this time? Yeah, so Jordan uh, was DP on that, and um, it was... a It was a lot... Of, I mean, it was a tough, a tough one to shoot. Uh, it was because it was such a big scale project for not a lot of money um but it was a lot of fun and the actress brio was great um she's a big she's a director in her own right and it's been was on the show heroes and in a lot of stuff so it was really fun to work with her and it was cool to work with somebody who was probably the most high profile actor i'd worked with at that point and have her kind of believe in the project that's awesome how did you get her on board uh i met her uh, i interviewed her for one of the documentaries i did and then we just kind of stayed in touch um at like Comic-Con, I saw her several times. And then um, one of the things that was cool about doing all these documentaries and kind of getting into the like Comic-Con or geek or whatever world is that it's very small and you kind of see the same people at a lot of events. So it's easy to kind of get to know people or just stay in touch um, in a way you might not in just like the larger world, you know? Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. So, like, another person in that movie who's huge now is uh, Taliesin Jaffe, who's on the show called Critical Role, which um, you either, like, love or have never heard of. It's basically a bunch of voice actors playing D&D, &D, but they raised, like, $10 million on Kickstarter for an animated adaptation of their the show. And I was just like, my God, that's an insane... That's bigger than, like, Veronica Mars or Mystery Science Theater or all these kind of brand names. And it was just insane. Um, so it's really cool to see people kind of over the years keep, you know, doing different stuff. Definitely. What a cool way to fund something like that also. Yeah. It was like, it was crazy. It's really uh, like a testament to the, the fan base they've built. Yeah, yeah. So then I was going through, again, your website and your work and everything. And The Image Revolution, is this the first documentary you've done at this point? Or you had done at that point? 
Uh, well, the first one I did was the Grant Morrison documentary, um, which was back in 2010. So that was, uh, um, it was just kind of like a, a fortunate event that I got to do that because Grant was like the, one of the biggest influences on my work and just a huge idol for me. And I think for, he's somebody where, again, like a lot of people don't know him or are not familiar, but the ones who do, like he's just, you know, has such a mystique and such a legend about him. So it was very cool to get to tell that story. Um, and I had never done a doc, so it was really cool that like he trusted me and to do it. And um, so it was Jordan and I and our other producer, Amber, and we basically went to uh, his house here in L.A. and we went to Scotland where he has a house and we're filming with him and we filmed many, many people he had worked with and many people he had, you know, who were kind of knew him over the years. And it was just like, he's got, he, I mean, he has a lot of like really out there ideas and interesting things and his life and work are very bound up in each other. So it was a fun project to do because it was kind of, you could tell the two stories of his life and his work in the same they each like inform each other. That's amazing. How did you secure funding for that project? That seemed like such a huge endeavor. Uh, well, we worked with this uh, company called Sequart, who um, publishes books about comics, and then they they funded that. But it was done very very low budget, um, and I mean the travel was the biggest cost, and um, you know ultimately it was just kind of like we knew that if we made it there would be an audience for it, so it was like let's just figure out a way to do it and um, get it done. Is low budget something that you enjoy working in? Um, or, I mean, do you hope to work on projects that have bigger budgets eventually? I think low budgets are very stressful because you're always either, you know, having to make sacrifices of things that, you know, you might want to do that you can't. And you just have to kind of scale the, the concept to what's possible on the budget. I, I think the thing I'll say is that I've tried to, you know, raise money for bigger budget things and it's like i've been able to make a lot of stuff at a low budget and i've never had the the luck of getting a bigger budget so i think you can wind up like wasting a lot of time trying to pursue funding for things or you can kind of just make more stuff at a lower budget and i've been fortunate because all the stuff i've done i've had you know final cut or whatever you want to say like there's nobody overseeing me on almost all this stuff it's basically just me uh and the the producers and stuff but it's not like uh, the studio or whatever telling me how to do stuff um which i know from other people's experiences it's like a lot of people don't have that luxury and the, the more money you have the more responsibility you take on from the person giving you that money to you know fulfill their goal or make their money back or do what they want. So if, if you are able to work at a low budget, you can have more leverage and control over what you do. During this time, how are you working full-time as a filmmaker? Or are you also working a day job? I mean, pretty much for the past like 10 years, I've been um, mixing between doing my own projects and then doing editing stuff for hire or some, you know, producing and shooting things for hire. Um, and, you know, to this day, still doing that. Um, so I've been fortunate. I haven't had to have you know, like the, the traditional day job of going into a office and, you know, nine to five or whatever, nine to six. Um, but it, it is not like the documentaries I've done have not been lucrative enough to, you know, uh, pay for me to work on them full time or it, it's not been like a scenario where they've, they've made some money and some have had more money than others to play with. Um, 
but it's it's I think it, in this level of independent filmmaking, almost everybody, even like people who would you know shock you to hear that are doing work for hire, be it you know commercials or just editing or just shooting, like everybody's kind of hustling something. What brought you to LA? Um, well, I think for me in New York, I kind of felt like I was hitting a wall of what was possible. I think that you can shoot stuff. If you're like, you know, Martin Scorsese and you want to shoot in New York, or if you're, you know, Tina Fey and you want to shoot your show in New York and run your show in New York, it's very possible. Like all the resources exist, the talent exists, the production people exist. But if you're trying to meet kind of the people who will make the decisions and help you get the more opportunities. I think there's just more opportunities in LA. And I think that in my experience, the people are a little more kind of like focused and a little more serious about what they're doing. Uh, part of that might just be that I was older when I was out here. So I wasn't, you know, meeting as many people who are just like, well, I'm just out of college. I want to shoot this web series, but I don't, you know, I'm totally disorganized or whatever. Um, but that, that was the big thing. And I think I was coming out here more and meeting more people out here and seeing more opportunities. So I felt like I could go further out here than in New York. Warren was, uh, he's a friend of Grant's. And this was one of the things that was very advantageous was once, um, I kind of once Grant uh, started the project and vouched for us, I think everybody was kind of like, oh, Grant's, Grant's working with them. Oh, they must be good. Um, and it's a very small world, so we were originally just going to try to interview Warren about Grant, but then we were like, well, as long as we're there, we're going all the way to England, let's, you know, start the next project, let's see if he was interested in doing this, and he was interested. So basically, Warren, for people who don't know him, is kind of like the cranky old man of comics, and he's very into, like, the future and kind of tech and, uh, like, quasi-dystopian futures. Um, so he, basically, we sat for, like, two full days in this like smoke filled basement hotel room in London. And he was smoking and drinking whiskey and Red Bull kind of alternating whiskey and Red Bull the whole day. And just talking about, you know, his life, his work, all these questions we were asking him. Um, and it was really, you know, I knew Warren, uh, ran this forum that was around back in like the early two thousands. And, uh, a lot of big name comic creators like Kelly Sue DeConnick who created, basically rebooted Captain Marvel into the Captain Marvel from the movie Captain Marvel and uh, Matt Fraction, Kieran Gillen, all these people kind of came out of this forum and I was on that and kind of, you know, reading it. So it was really cool to see him in person and just get to talk to him a lot. Um, and with that project, we also tried to do some more weird kind of recreations and imagery and little like skits which he would read stuff from his books and we'd come up with like cool ideas for how to represent it um so the goal was to try to make it kind of funny and make it fit the vibe of his work as well as you know telling his story i love in your work all the kind of psychological states uh, represented through very unique editing choices and everything i think that was always one of my favorite aspects of any of your projects oh thank you well yeah that's one of the things that i love to do. I mean, I think editing is probably my favorite part of the process because it's just, it's like the least pressure because you're kind of like, I have this stuff. What can I do with it? And you can see it as opposed to in writing, you're always like, well, can I actually execute this? If this, you're, you know, like, will this ever be made? And then when you're actually shooting, you're very under pressure of being like, oh, we got to finish on time. We got to do this and that. So when you're editing, you can kind of be a little more creative because you're like, 
I got this stuff. What can I do with it? Now, all these films that you made so far, these are all under the Respect Films label? Yeah, yeah, yeah. When did you found Respect Films? Uh, well, so in, in 2008, after I graduated college, I went to work at this post house called Postworks, which is now like Technicolor um, in New York. And then around 2008, it wasn't a great time to be in the workforce because there was the recession and the crash and what have you. And then there was a big WGA strike at the time. So I wound up getting laid off. And that was when um, Jordan and I were both kind of like, oh, well, we've been shooting the third age on the side and we, you know, let's see what we can do. Let's see what we can shoot. And we were fortunate to uh, get an infomercial to shoot. So we were shooting that and then we were doing the grant the movie on Grant and it was kind of like, Oh, let's make this into an LLC. Let's make this into a business. Um, I just kind of kept going from there making more stuff and, um, deducting things from the taxes as appropriate, you know, all the benefits of an LLC. Yeah. And it's very cool. I think the intro logo for respect films is the same now as it was in the beginning, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that's based on, um, Kenneth Anger's, uh, Lucifer rising, which is another uh, an experimental classic that I love, and um, I kind of mimicked that. Uh, the, the, if you see the Lucifer rising, it's like these texts have like fire in it. It's rising out of a mountain, and then the Respect films is this text with fire in it rising out of like a, a sea. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So now moving on to a House of Demons. How did this come about? Because it's kind of a turn again in your filmmaking and everything. Is this your first feature? This was the first feature, like narrative feature I had done. Um, I always wanted to do, you know, more narrative stuff. And I, I had made the viral man, which was, I did it as a short and I had a script for it to try to turn it into a feature, which didn't happen. So I was kind of like, okay, let me just write something that I can produce that's contained, you know, in a house. And it's kind of um, something that will be easy to make. And so I wrote it and then I was able to secure just like barely enough funding, but enough where I was like, okay, I'm going to shoot this now and we're just going to move forward with it, even though we might not have quite enough to do it in a real way, but you got to kind of like jump off the plane or whatever and hope that the parachute materializes on the way down. Um, So the movie was originally called Trip House, which... Yeah, I still refer to it as, I think most people who worked on it refer to it as, um, and it's probably more descriptive of the movie. Uh, but the, I, I wound up kind of taking a lot of the themes that, and some of the character relationships that got developed in the third age, because just from shooting all this stuff and working with all the actors, I felt like there was some rich material there and a lot of the stuff that interested me and wrapping it into this, um, kind of riff on like the cabin in the woods, uh, genre. So it was kind of, like a, or I'll describe it as like the big chill meets the shining meets Charles Manson. Um, so that was produced at a very, uh, indie level and it was, um, a lot of fun to do. And it, it was very fun and very stressful at the same time because it was great to be up there in this house in the woods. There was no phone service. So everybody was kind of like in the zone of the movie and, um, but, I mean, it was super stressful at the same time because we had all kinds of problems with the house. Um, everybody's kind of like, oh, could you throw me some money for this? Oh, I had to buy this or whatever. So you're, it's hard to produce and direct because you're like, on the one hand, being like, let me focus on the scene. And on the other hand, you're like, oh, we had to rent a porta potty Can you give me the credit card so I could do that? Um, 
but it, it was ultimately, uh, you know, I was very happy with the way it turned out. I think everybody involved had a really great experience. Um, and it, you know, ultimately the movie got distributed by Sony home entertainment, which was crazy because it was a really small movie, but we were fortunate that people liked the movie. They saw an opportunity in it and we got acquired. So it wound up being in Walmart, which is kind of where, without going into too many details, the name change came about. I guess Trip House was a little too edgy for some people. So the movie became House of Demons, and it was distributed uh, all over the place. It was cool to go into Walmart and see it next to, like, Wonder Woman on the shelf and be like, wow, that's, you know, pretty crazy to see uh, the journey of that. That's amazing. Uh, where did you shoot that movie? Uh, we shot it in L.A., in, in uh, Santa Clarita, which is about 45 minutes north of L.A., uh, in Los Angeles National Forest, which is weird because it looks just like upstate New York, I think. It has the very, like, pine trees and uh, foresty vibe, which you very rarely see out here, but it, it was cool. Um, so we shot most of it there, and then we shot some days. Uh, we shot at, like, a hospital set, which was fun, and we shot at a comic book store, and we shot at my apartment, and one of our other producers apartment. So it's sort of a classic, you know, indie uh, scenario where every resource you're like, well, I think this could be someone's office. Sure. You know, uh, we'll make it work. Uh, so it was a lot of fun. And it, it was something where I wrote the script to be very contained, but it wound up having like four, you know, seven main characters and all these time hopping things. So we had a lot of period stuff from the sixties and we had, so many, we had a lot more locations and things than, you know, a, a true, like, contained movie would have. But uh, I think it, you know, turned out for the best. Awesome. It does look definitely like upstate New York. I was, I thought for sure you had shot it there. What are, what are some of your favorite horror films? Are you a big horror film fan? Um, I, I really like kind of the way the genre has developed in the past sort of like 10 or 15 years. I think that horror is kind of or I was talking to somebody who was like in the nineties, you would make your like Pulp Fiction knockoff if you were an indie filmmaker. And today you would make a horror if you want to kind of like have a vehicle. So I think like uh, this year, like Midsommar I loved and I think was a great example of a movie that would probably like this Ari Aster would probably not be making horror movies if it was the nineties or the seventies, you know, if it was the seventies, he might be making like the Godfather or, you know, um, jaws or something like that but at this point in time horror is kind of one of the genres where people can still make uh you know make sort of more like auteur driven type movies and have people go see them so i think even like jordan peele is a good example of somebody where i, I think he loves the genre but it's also like people go see it it's horror and they they like it in a way that i think is a hard sell with a straight drama or something like that um so I think movies like Midsommar, or like It Follows, I loved. Um, the Guest from about, you know, 10 or so years ago now, I really loved. Um, it's been really cool to see. And then, I mean, there's uh, classics like the, the Wicker Man, which was a big Midsommar influence, is a, a favorite. And um, was definitely like an influence on me. And The Shining, obviously, is such like a titan of the genre. Um, that's one of my favorites. Yeah, I just watched, um, rewatched Evil Dead and Evil Dead Two, which uh, you introduced me to also at the LMC TV camp. The uh, the shot following the guy through the whole house. Uh. I mean, that's a classic shot. Yo, <laughs> we had built uh, at one one of the times we had a, like the plank cam, which was what they used. Um, so we had a rig with like a screw where you could screw the camera in and uh, plank it around. So that was a fun uh, uh, thing to pick up on. And were you the writer on that movie also? 
Yeah, so on House of Demons, I did, uh, I wrote, directed, edited, and then produced with others. Um, but yeah, it was it was a pretty. Um, I, I mean, I always like to write, direct, and edit the stuff because I, I see it as kind of the same thing. Because I think you're you're always sort of writing the movie with each thing you're making the choices that determine what the movie is. So it's odd. If it would feel to me like to hand it to someone else to edit would feel weird because it's like I, I would feel like I'm, if you were like a writer and you wrote the first draft and then you were just like finish it someone else, you know, it, it, it would be weird. So I think it's the same thing with film kind of. Definitely. Yep. Makes a lot of sense. And then on 10 spotting, you that you didn't write that, right? Well, that one, yeah, was a, an example of um, I got approached. Uh, somebody had the script to do a, a short film that was kind of a romantic comedy in the world of Doctor Who fandom. So it was fun. I, I like to um, try to do different stuff just because I think it's it's cool to, to try different skills. And that was a lot of fun. We got to work with Taliesin again, who was on um, Critical Role, who I mentioned earlier, and Chloe Dykstra, who has become... I've worked with her on two projects since, and um, that was the first time I worked with Tiffany Smith, who was also in House of Demons, and Jeff Torres, who was in House of Demons. So it was a, a kind of like a warm-up for House of Demons, even though it was very different. And it was fun to do um, this sort of rom-com vibe, um, which I probably you know wouldn't necessarily write something like that, but it was fun to get to work with that. And we had a big, a big cast of people in all Doctor Who outfits and stuff, so it was a lot of fun. Oh, very cool. And again, going back to Lynch and everything, even the contrast between something like Ten Spotting and then House of Demons, it's this uh, Ten Spotting seems like this very uh, kind of blonde LA uh, happy lifestyle or something, contrasted with uh, this intense uh, horror, kind of the guy behind hiding behind the dumpster in Mulholland Drive or something. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I think it was it it was fun to just like branch out, you know, and, and try something different like that and to get to meet more people. I, I think it's always cool. You always meet people doing stuff. And I wound up, you know, working with so many of those people again on the, the uh, House of Demons. You were saying about like getting House of Demons into Walmart and everything, which I think for a lot of independent filmmakers and experimental filmmakers is a huge achievement. Um, how do you go about getting your films out there? Is it uh, festivals? Is it uh, some kind of distribution deal? Um, well, I, I think that's one of the biggest challenges is, is that, and I was just reading an article today about festivals where like people got into these festivals that don't even exist and like, don't actually screen anything and are basically just like to put that laurel on your, you know, box or whatever. Um, so with that movie, unfortunately, or fortunately, if you have the connections, it's really everything like I've gotten in terms of distribution has come from connections and people I've met through, you know, friends or just through other people I've worked with and degrees. Um, so the, the distribution deal for this came out of one of our actors had a friend who was starting at this distribution company and was looking for stuff. And she was like, Oh, you should talk to, you know, Patrick who had did this movie with me. And it was just kind of the right place and the right time. And I think for with Grant Morrison, our distribution came from one of the producers we were working with was like, oh, my friend runs this distribution company. You should talk to him. Um, with the Image Revolution, it came from – it was a, a weird story. So in Mamaronak, I met this woman uh, who was friends with uh, this guy Jeff Dowd, who is the real-life inspiration for the dude from The Big Lebowski. And he lived – he grew up in Larchmont. Um 
and he he's out here in LA now. So he was he lives like a walking distance from my apartment. So I met with him, and he was every bit the dude you would imagine. So he but he really liked the movie. He really got into this sort of message of like creators doing it for themselves. And he uh, introduced me to these guys who I wound up working with a bunch, and they set up the distro deal. So it's it's always. Like, I haven't played that many festivals. The best thing I've gotten out of festivals is a lot of free wine at the Napa Valley Film Festival. Um, but even that came about because of a personal connection where we interviewed Helen Mirren, who obviously is, is a legend, and her publicist was like, oh, I'm working with this festival. We should get the movie in there because Helen's in it. So I was like, all right, sure, that sounds great. Um, so I went up there. It was wonderful. Had a lot of wine and a lot of great uh, perks. But... Uh, I think there's there's festivals that will get you distribution like South by or Sundance or Toronto or Cannes. And then there's festivals that are just like my short film is showing in this random theater or this random conference room. And some friends of the people who made the other short films are there and they're all just waiting for their friends thing. And then they're going to leave, you know? Uh, so it's hard in that regard. Um, the thing that I think from a kind of experimental filmmaking is I think Trip House, uh, House of Demons is a very, th there was a lot of weird, uh, you know, a lot of experimental technique and a lot of, um, you know, all kinds of crazy stuff in there. And I, I always saw it more on kind of the artier side of things and kind of in tune with the people like a David Lynch or a Grant Morrison. But when it's called House of Demons and it's in Walmart, I think it has or it's presented as, you know, kind of this low-budget horror. I think people go in expecting a certain thing. So it was an interesting reaction because I got some reactions where they were like, oh, this movie's so deep. Here's, like, page after page of, like, all the connections and all these layers and all these parallels. And I was like, oh, that's awesome. And then there would be other reviews where they're like, where were the demons? Or, like, this movie sucked. It was boring. Like, why was there no, you know... Um, people who just didn't expect that. So I think that's one of the, the challenges that even movies like, uh, you know, Midsommar or Drive have run into where, like, if you go to Midsommar expecting a fun, or, you know, fun horror movie set, like, hostile set in a Swedish camp, you're going to be like, Jesus, this movie's long and this movie's, like, drawn out and, you know, all this stuff that I don't necessarily want to see. So you, that's the weird thing about horror is there's two audiences. There's like this artsy horror audience and there's the, the more mainstream audience. And when you try to pitch something that's more artsy down the mainstream lane, it can be a tricky, a tricky thing. Um, so I hope that the movie, you know, continues to find more of the kind of artsy audience and uh, as time goes on, because I think there's there's people out there who would really enjoy it that might not have checked it out because they're they're not attuned to kind of the scene that, you know, in the way that the people who watch other horror movies are. The horror is for sure a tricky genre in that way. Like you have films like The Shining, which is technically a horror film, but it's so much more than that. It's such a psychological drama and all this. And then you have something like, you know, uh, Friday the 13th or something, which is, you know, a slasher film and very uh, mainstream, whatever. Yeah, yeah. And I don't think there's anything wrong with those movies, but I think it's it's when the audience is expecting one and gets the other that they can feel like, uh, you know, they're not going to respond necessarily. And some of them will, but some people can't kind of make that jump. Yeah, and again, when you have so many, like, auteurs creating uh, horror films and everything, you kind of see them go this way or that way, where... It's either, some, you know, it's always something in a way that's very personal. 
um, that somebody is creating an either it's you know a slasher film that like you said there's nothing wrong with that but you know that's just what they're interested in or something very personal that's more uh, psychological or you know artsy or you know long cuts whatever it may be yeah yeah for sure um, and it's, it's interesting to see I think over time it can change because I watched uh, like for Halloween I watched um, Nightmare on Elm Street 3 Dream Warriors and I was like oh this movie's pretty good it's kind of you know an X-Men vibe but I feel like at the time it would just been perceived as like schlock and bad um and then sometimes the artsier stuff of the past doesn't age as well as like more just straight ahead genre stuff yeah yeah definitely i just rewatched uh rosemary's baby and that too i in some ways i used to like that film a lot more than i do now and i don't know if uh you agree or not but i feel like it hasn't aged uh as well as some other things i mean i think that some of the shocks of it are a little less than they are because we've seen so much now. So I think a viewer at that time would be more, it might seem more visceral than, you know, what we're used to today. Right. Yeah. So just going back to your catalog of films, uh, can you talk about dream dangerously for a little while? I know that's a huge film that we haven't really touched on too much. Sure. Um, so that was about Neil Gaiman. So Neil, I think probably is the most famous of all these people who I've done documentaries about. Um, and this one was a little different because, it wasn't just kind of interviews with him and interviews with people. We were on the road with him and the, the movie was kind of like a tour uh, movie, like a, you know, like a, a rock doc or whatever you want to say, where you're following the guy on tour, except this time he was signing books and that might sound boring, but it was like 2000 books a night. And he was, it's really him interacting with all these fans. So it's kind of interacting with like thousands of people who love his books. Um, and it was really fun because we got to follow him around Comic-Con, San Diego Comic-Con, and we're just kind of a fly on the wall. We had it mic'd. And um, so it was fun to listen to like him and, you know, people like Jonathan Ross from uh, the UK TV. And at one point we ran into just George R. R. Martin was like standing outside a hotel waiting for a shuttle. And Neil walked up and just like miraculously like unbothered by anybody for like 10 minutes. They're just chatting. Um and then, so after following him all around Comic-Con, which was a crazy, his philosophy there was basically like, I'm not stopping. If you want to take a picture, take a picture, but I'm not stopping because then he'll get kind of, you know, mobbed by people. Sure, yeah. Um, so that was really cool. And then we followed him on tour through the UK. So it was from uh, basically the very bottom, like Portsmouth up to Inverness in Scotland. So it was driving you know, all along and doing all these events. And um, it was a really different process, I think, because we got, in some ways we got to know him a lot better because we spent so much time together. And it was just kind of like being, I think by the time we were around for so long, it was there was no like self-consciousness about being on camera. There was no sense of like, oh, I'm being filmed now because it was just constant, which I think is what you want in a documentary. Um and then that one was fun because that was intercut with kind of similar to what the other ones were, where it's recounting their life, recounting their work, recounting their story. And um, Neil was funny because he, uh, everybody kind of agrees, like he's had this charmed life and he's just been successful at like everything he tries. So the challenge was kind of like, where's the story in this? Because like, it's just like he wrote comics and he wrote the greatest comic of all time. He wrote books. He wrote these best selling books. He moved into TV. Everybody loved his show, you know? So it's like, where's the drama or where's the challenge um and i think in the tour story we found kind of a story about him struggling with the demands of 
his celebrity versus his desire to be a writer. And I think you could see his like central, there's two Neils in that there's the guy who just wants to sit in his house and just write and read books and just write and read books. And then there's the guy who loves being kind of this rock star and loves being, you know, having these fans come and doing events and doing, you know, um, the kind of guy, like the guy who married Amanda Palmer, who is, is into that. And then there's still that like, you know, nerdy guy who just wants to read. Um, so I think it was kind of exploring that dichotomy that ultimately became the core of it. What does your crew look like on, on a shoot like this? Um, and what is your crew like in general? Is it very small? Is it like you and Jordan doing a lot of this stuff? Um, it's very small. Typically for the docs, um, on the first ones we had, uh, it was us. I would ask the questions on an interview. He would shoot and we would have a boom person. But then we replaced the person with a C-stand, and um, which, uh, you know, I'm sorry, to the uh, mechanization or whatever, robots taking jobs. That yeah, yeah. To go. Um, but on the, the Neil, it was basically we had him lobbed and we had a boom mounted on the camera and it was just Jordan filming and then I would kind of, um, you know, be like, oh, shoot this or get this and I would carry the stuff. Um, so it was a very small crew in, in that case. It was just two people. What about on your narrative stuff? On House of Demons was probably the biggest crew I had. It was like 20 people. So it was still pretty small as crews go but it was it was nice to have like a first ad and just kind of be able to be like oh could you take care of this and then it would be like all right everybody do this you know so i was like i could use a first ad in life you know just uh everywhere i go um but that so that was a bigger operation but um i I would say for most of the, the narrative stuff like the third age was smaller that was probably like five people you know on the crew um but yeah, the docs, I mean, I don't think you need that many people. I think the more people just kind of gets in the way of it. The goal for me is always to like not feel like you're on camera and just take away that sense of like, it's to just have a conversation with the person and get them to open up if you're interviewing them. And then if you're following them around, just to be invisible because you don't want people being aware. You don't want a big boom holding in. You don't want to be like, I, I would never be like, oh, say that again or like do that moment again, you know, because I think the. It always feels inauthentic if you ask someone to say something again because they're not. It just never works. Definitely. I'm a big proponent of a kind of first thought, best thought. And you shoot it, you get that take, you know, it happens a certain way the first time. And then you move on from there rather than uh, trying to perfect something and turn it into some phony action or something like that. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely time, like at the end of the very end of the movie, we had like the zinger where Neil is sitting there and he's like, he tells Jordan, he's like, turn that camera off or I'll kill you. And it's great. But this guy is like walking in like halfway into the frame. And on the one hand, you're like, oh, I wish we had redone that. But at the same time, you're like, that is, that's the emotion of it, that he really legitimately said that. And it was like, all right, we're done, you know? So you don't want to mess with the the authenticity of that. Yeah, definitely. And it is a fine line because sometimes there's that one practical element of, you know, somebody walking into the shot or something and, you know, it does call for it to be redone. Um, yeah, yeah. but other times, you know, that accident is kind of the best part or makes the best, uh, shot or whatever. Yeah, for sure. I, I you, there are times when you could be like, oh, this thing was so shaky, we can't use it or whatever. And, and that could be frustrating, but you know, that's, that's what the doc world is when you're on this kind of like more verite style. Definitely. I didn't think documentary and kind of classic experimental film are very similar in that way, in that. In some ways, anything can go. Um, so in terms of editing, it's such a 
headache in a way to decide what what stays in and what goes out because it's not like a narrative or some uh, very structured thing where you have you know there's a storyboard written out or your script written out and you know it ends on this line and that's it anything extra is extraneous yeah well I, i've often sometimes i'll watch docs I, I think for me it's hard to watch docs because i'm aware of the tricks and if i see people like you know for example like alex gibney with like that theranos documentary i'm like i read this book you basically just turn the book into a narrator and cut to the interviewees from the book. Like there, there's, it's very much just like, you knew what was going in. You weren't digging anything up with this documentary. You were just like recreating the research that had already been done. Yeah. Um, so I, I, for me at least, I always had a kind of like a, a vague map of where I was going, but would want to see, you know, like I described with Neil or, or with Grant was a similar process where you're like, what's the narrative here? We have to find the narrative in what they say rather than impose a narrative onto, you know, not go in being like, this is the story and we're going to tell it like this and that, you know. How structured in general do you go into a shoot? Um, well, with, with Doc, for all of them, pretty much we would start with an outline, which laid out kind of the, the basic big picture. Um, so like on the image revolution is a good example where we had the story of image is basically the story of these seven artists founding the company. And then over time it, it had ups and downs and then they, the walking dead came out and was a big hit. So it, as originally broken, the ending parts of with like the walking dead and such were, were probably going to be about a third uh, to a half of it. But it, in shooting it, the story of these founders, we were like, this is the story and everything else is just kind of an epilogue. So that became like 90% the founders stories. And it was much more about the, the interpersonal conflicts of like Tom McFarlane and Rob Liefeld and Jim Lee and all these artists from the nineties. Cause that was the story that was, you know, that's where like the drama was. That's where the meat of it was. And so it, it changed in that regard. It, it wasn't like we were like, um, uh, you know, oh, we're, we're not going to have any of this at all. And then it appeared, but it was just the focus narrowed to this part that was more exciting. Yeah. What about like in House of Demons? Do you go into that with a storyboard and a full script or do you kind of have an outline? Uh, it was a full script in that case, but I wound up doing a lot of stuff in post to um, change things around a little bit. I, I think like... Uh, I always think about like the, the creators of game of Thrones famously like made their pilot and they, the pilot tested poorly and people were like, Oh, who's this? Who's that? And uh, they changed it. And then it became like the, the biggest show of all time. So I think it's very important to not be too stubborn about that, even though it does like hurt when you show somebody something and you're like, Oh, this is so great. I just finished this cut. It's awesome. And then they're like, well, but I, who's this and who's that? And you're like, Oh, okay. So they'd be like, but it's in there. Uh, but you know, you kind of have to like listen to what people say. So in that case, I wound up re shifting a bunch of scenes around the order of scenes and kind of creating a couple scenes in post, uh, with VO and elements like that to really hammer home stuff. And then once that was done, it tested a lot better and people were really able to follow it a lot better, which was just from moving stuff around from where the original script was. What's your testing process like? I mean, it's, it's really just going more to people I trust. Um, I, I don't think you need to show something to like uh, that many people. I think you can kind of get the sense of what, what people say. And I think it's important to not try to please everybody, but just to kind of be like, okay, this is something that's not working for them. 
can I live with that or should I, you know, what can I do to make alleviate that problem? Um, so in that case, we were getting the notes of like, it's very confusing. It's hard to latch on to like what this movie's about. What, it was like, once I got to the end, I was like, okay, that's what it's about. But at the beginning, I didn't know what it was about. So it was all about figuring out like, how can we focus it so that you say, okay, these are the main characters. This is the story. And then go from there. Um, Cause I think it's like, it, it's like a train leaving the station. Like if you're on the train, weird stuff can happen and you can have all kinds of, you know, detours and things, but as long as you know where you're going, but if you get left off the train, you're just like, what the F is this? I don't know. You know, it's a bunch of random stuff. Um, so it would just be kind of every cut, it would be show it to a couple different people um, and kind of get a sense of, of what they think. And then um, I also try to, I think some people can fall into the thing of being like only looking for negatives or looking for like fishing for like complaints. But I also try to get a sense of what's working both because I think it makes you like feel better about yourself. And also it's good to not delete something because somebody, sometimes there's been scenes where I'm like, well, this could probably go. And people are like, no, I love that. Uh, that was good. You know, so it's good to know both sides of things. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So what are you working on now? Um, well, that's, one of the interesting things from a, a kind of experimental point of view is uh, in doing House of Demons, I saw a, a lot of different stuff about like the process of making one of these kind of and distributing one of these sort of lower budget horror movies. And it was it was very hard to get people to pay for anything like the movie was available on demand for like three dollars, which, you know, people spend three. Obviously, you could sit here and be like, people go to Starbucks and buy a latte every day for three dollars. They won't pay three dollars for a movie. But like. It is what it is. So I, I was kind of thinking about different ways of how to make stuff that people will watch. So I've been working on um, sort of an anthology series, which I think we're going to release as um, basically different episodes, but could also be watched as a feature or you could watch each piece. So the premise is it's called The End is Here. And the premise is basically people find out that all life on Earth is going to be wiped out in a year. And then it's all it's basically 10 different short films set about people exploring how they respond to this and kind of what, what, how the world changes and what, what everybody does to deal with it. And it was an opportunity for me because I wanted to work with a lot of different actors and work a bit in different genres. So there's ones that are more kind of suspense or horror. And there's ones that are more on the sort of like comedy or, or, you know, like light drama or sort of like romance side. Um, so I thought it was a fun kind of like umbrella way to do a bunch of stuff where people would be interested in watching it. And then there's threads throughout where sort of some characters reoccur or people are mentioned or concepts are mentioned uh, throughout. So rather than being like, here's a bunch of random things, you kind of get a sense of things building towards this conclusion uh, as it goes on. So how is this being released? Is it 10 se like separate short films or... I think it's where the plan is to release it um, through a distributor to Amazon Prime where it'll be as 10 individual units, but then they'll be, um, you could watch them all essentially as a feature. It would essentially be like, uh, you know, like that Coen Brothers movie that came out recently, uh, pretty much like that. Um, and it will be up to you because that was one of the other things I was like, I want to give people the option, even though for me, it's like, I like watching a movie as you know like god intended in the theater in one go uninterrupted you know but i, I think that 
people want to watch stuff in all different ways, and I want to give them the option of saying, you want to watch it as a show, you want to watch it as a movie, you want to watch, pick it out, you know, do whatever you want. It's up to you to decide whatever you will actually watch rather than saying, like, sit down and watch 90 minutes of this. Kind of opening this up to a larger uh, idea of something. I mean, why in general are you interested in making films, making art, um, and specifically kind of, you know, why have you always worked in this independent style and carved out your own uh, medium? Uh, well, I, I think for me, um, part of the reason I'm doing this new project uh, that is to focus on just being able to create stuff. I, I was like, what can I create where I can... Uh, you know, things that are within the budget, within the possibility, and then I could just go shoot rather than wait for the approval of, of someone kind of higher up. Because I, I think there's a weird thing in among people in the film industry of everybody wants to keep going higher. And I think that's how you wind up with like crazy, like Chloe Zhao. You're like, why did you go from the rider to making like the Eternals for Marvel? Like this is a bizarre jump. And I understand why you would do it. But it's also like, is this the best there is? Is it all just about like a treadmill, you know, or like whatever, trying to climb the steps to uh, getting more money and getting, you know, less control of your stuff? So for me, I think it's just like, I love the process. I, I always am thinking about stories. I'm always thinking about, you know, things I would want to make. And I, I like the ability to just write something and shoot it or with, you know, these docs to have the opportunity to say like, if I make this, someone will actually watch it because it's they know Neil Gaiman or they know Grant Morrison and they're going to go watch it. Um, so I've always tried to do projects where, you know, to some extent, it's like a path of, of less resistance where it will actually exist, you know, because uh, obviously you hear stories about like people in L.A. where it's like they, they've sold 20 scripts, and, but they've never had anything produced, you know, but they're still living off that whatever check from the 90s. And it's like I, I wouldn't. I mean, obviously, like, I would love to be living off a check from the 90s, but I, that's not what I would want to do. I, I want to actually make stuff, even if it's smaller, and have the control to do it and the opportunity to just kind of, you know... There's so many great actors out there and so many people who really want to create stuff that, like, it's... If you come up with something, people will be a part of it and will support, you know, want to help you make it. Definitely, the process, and like you're saying, the process of making the film and everything is, you know, it's one of the joys rather than just the paycheck or the clout or something like that. Um, do you see yourself ever moving into any other uh, mediums, any other art art mediums or anything like that? Like, I know you have such an interest in comics. Have you yourself ever written comics, or would you? Is that something you would like to venture into? Yeah, I did one comic. Uh, a couple years ago called Last Born, which was um, fun because in all the stuff I've done, I've always, I think once you, the more stuff you make when you're, then when you're writing a script for yourself to produce, the more you almost like self-censor elements that you know will be terrible for you to have to deal with. Um, so you kind of write scripts that are like, oh, what if this was set in a house rather than like a stadium, you know? Yep. Um, so with that, it was fun because it was a big, it was set in sort of like a post-apocalyptic world and there was flashbacks to like the dawn of man and like, uh, you know, kind of like explorer times and the fifties and the future. And it was just this really big story and it was a lot of fun to, um, get to do that. And I, I, like, I love doing comics and it's a different collaboration because I'm used to shooting my own stuff. So I feel like 
it's different but cool to to write something and then kind of hand it off and be like oh there it is wow like i did not you know expect it to come back like that but it, it did um so there's another comics project i've done that will hopefully be coming out next year um which has also been cool. Uh, I was working with a co-writer kind of off of somebody else's story. So that was a different challenge um, from what I've done. And it, it was a fun process because I think um, a lot of the stuff I've done myself is very out there and very, you know, big concepts and stuff. So it was fun to work with something a little more restrained and get to kind of be like, oh, I'm just more writing a straightforward story rather than doing all this you know, weird stuff on top of it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, and sometimes when you like collaborate with somebody like that or move into another genre, like you're saying, you kind of figure out new ways of moving uh, in your art or something like being able to have a throwback to, uh, you know, the uh, dawn of man or the 50s or something like that, that you could never achieve, um, you know, given the constraints of a budget and filmmaking and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah, I think for me that the thing that I love, one of the things I love most is working with the actors. and I think that's what you get in no other medium. Um, and particularly like when I work with the actors, I try to do a lot of kind of improv or let them bring stuff to the character, um, so that it doesn't just feel like it's like my voice, you know, speaking through all these people, but that it's kind of all these different voices coming together. Um, so I, I think it's just a really cool process and it's something that's different from any other medium because you do the actor is there is almost like an advocate for their character within the project. And you don't get that in a comic or in a book because they don't exist. But here there is somebody like representing them. Definitely. Yeah. It's a very unique uh, interaction and everything. And definitely one of the most fun uh, aspects of the medium. I'm uh, just jumping back to something I forgot to ask you before. Warren Ellis. I, uh, so you defined it. He's defines himself or you define him as a cyberpunk philosopher. Mm-hmm. Can you just kind of define that and uh, also in relation to his ideas on it? Sure. I, I mean, I think for me, it's that he is kind of very focused on ideas about the future and how technology and, um, you know, other emerging things will influence humanity. So I, I think a lot of his, certainly his most famous work, and I think his best work exists at the intersection of kind of like humanity and the future and as time has gone on, I think, you know, every day we're seeing like, uh, you know, the ways that technology can negatively impact humanity. And, um, so he's kind of like a, a prophet in that regard. And I think he loves to ruminate on it and think about, you know, he was very ahead of the curve in, in his adoption of the internet and kind of like the, uh, internet personas and things in terms of how he sold his books. I, I think he more than any other writer in comics was able to use the internet to establish a brand um, I mean, the, the thing a lot of people would say with like his greatest creation is himself and his internet persona and the way he presented himself to the world. Um, cause I think he, he, you know, in that early days of the internet was very, uh, used that to his advantage. Mm, but he's, you said that he's also somebody who talks about the negative uh, effects of technology. I think that's always been a, a focus for him. And I think as time has gone on, I think we've all seen, you know, the internet that, people were used to maybe from the nineties or the early two thousands has become a lot more corporatized and dominated people's lives in ways that I, we never could have foreseen. So I, I think a lot of his work like trans metropolitan was very prescient in, in looking at that, uh, the dangers of technology and, you know, of people becoming addicted to, uh, technology and such. Um, and it was cool with that project because we talked to a lot of 
like real, you know, scientists and philosophers who he is in correspondence with and who turn to him for ideas or, you know, he talks to to get ideas for his books. Um, and it was fun to hear him kind of positioned not just as like, you know, a comic book writer, but as a legit thinker on the future. That was one of the most exciting things in that description that he interacts with scientists in the list of people that he interacts with. I mean, I love that when, uh, you know, a philosopher or an artist or something has an actual uh, relationship with some some very tangible part of the world as well. Yeah, it was super cool. I mean, with him, it was we got to interview a lot of different people from Helen Mirren to, you know, Patton Oswalt to like Claudio Sanchez of Coheed and Cambria to like a guy who worked at, I think it was Caltech, to a guy who was like a a futurist to a guy who worked at this company in England that made basically made like the sci-fi inventions from books and comics and stuff. They tried to make them for real. Like that was their business model. So it was a fun, and then to all, all kinds of other people. So it was really a cool opportunity. And that, that's one of the things that I've liked the most about doing all these docs is just getting to interview people who like I either knew or, or came to know through them who are just really interesting people. And then just having the excuse to go to them and be like, will you sit down and talk with us? Yeah, amazing. Looking ahead to your future, is there anything in the vaults that you're hoping to complete? Um, or are you kind of just letting the the wind guide you? I mean, it's pretty much this this end is here project. So I've shot four of the ten shorts. And the, the goal has been kind of to try to do like one a month. Um, but I've been waiting on some actors and stuff. So it's probably like mid next year that will be done. Uh, but that's been a fun thing. And then I have a few scripts I've been trying to develop and um, a couple of doc things. I mean, the, the, the doc model, I think, changed a little bit. Like Kickstarter was very advantageous to us, but I think Kickstarter has sort of died down. Um, and also just in comics, I, there's not a lot of stories left, I feel like, that I would want to tell. And it, it's harder to get funding. People are very, like, it's very hard to get people to imagine that you could do something else. So, like, people will be like, oh, I'll be like, oh, what about this cool story in music or this cool thing in film? And they're like, well, what about comics? What about, you know, Daredevil? What about this and that? And I'm like, well, I feel like we kind of did that. What about, you know, this other thing? Um, but people, I think, see your expertise and they're like, this is the guy to go to if I want a documentary about comics rather than just, like, a documentary in general. Um but there, there's some cool opportunities that hopefully will, will lead to more. Um, I'd love to do more like short form content because I, I don't. I think there's a lot of stories in the doc world that don't necessarily require like 90 minutes, but would be fun to do. And um, that you know, it's it's harder to get the funding, but everything's always changing. Like every day, the, the media landscape is changing. So who knows what the future will hold. Fortunately, most of the stuff that I've talked about is, is going to be is either on streaming now or, or is uh, will be available shortly. So like Grant Morrison, Warren Ellis, um, The Image Revolution are all on Amazon Prime. Neil Gaiman should be coming to Amazon Prime very soon, um, pending a, a final approval. But, but long story short, it should be available on Amazon Prime. It's on Stars now. And House of Demons is uh, currently in a... Uh, a siesta between distributions, but is coming back uh, before the end of the year with a company called Cinedyne. So that will be cool. Awesome. Well, I hope people will check out your films. Um, Respect Films is a great uh, thing you've got, you've had going here for many years and everything. I can't wait to see what you guys put out in the near future. Awesome. Well, thanks for having me on. All right. Thanks, Patrick. Great to talk to you. Okay. Bye. All right. Take it easy. Talk to you soon. Okay. Bye-bye. All right. Cool. That's a wrap. <laughs>